Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. So after I'd gone through this breakup and I decided to kind of go in this, you know, like crash course in the depths of the valley, I basically just kind of stayed to myself for about a year and just worked all the time. And, you know, I went to Trader Joe's one day after like a 16 hour day and I like I was getting some fruit and stuff. And so I wanted to wash my hands and I asked one of the staff if I could use the restroom and they told me no because they thought I was homeless. <laughs> and I like looked down. And I was like, oh, my God, I do look like a Dickens, like chimney sweep or something. <laughs> and, so, and I was so I was so incredulous. I was like, do you know, I'm still repped by Ford. <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't say I didn't say it, but but it was it was interesting. It was a time. And so it was literally, I think, the next day that I was like, you know what? Maybe it's time to reclaim a little bit more of my femininity and get back in touch with what I used to do. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. I'm Amy, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Megan Hill. Megan Hill is a metal worker, furniture designer, and the founder of Whorehouse Studios. Yep, you heard that right. Whorehouse. That's or as in iron ore with a WH in parentheses up front. House as in Bauhaus and studios as an independent designer maker of bedroom furniture and bespoke pieces for residential and commercial spaces. Megan took an atypical route to metal fabrication and design. Her first career was as a model and an actress, but a bad breakup was the catalyst for picking up a welding torch. 
And yes, the brand name Whorehouse started as merely a play on words, but it's become a very powerful catalyst for conversation, something that Megan embraces wholeheartedly. So let's talk to Megan about that. My name is Megan Hill. I'm based in downtown Los Angeles, and I'm a metal worker, and I focus mainly on furniture design and fabrication. Where did you grow up? What was your hometown? What was your family like? I grew up actually in South Bend, Indiana. I'm a Midwestern girl. Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, yeah? yeah. Oh, wait, you said you were from Michigan, actually, right? Correct. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I actually, I, I do remember that. Yep. Actually, I had to go to, I think, tattoo parlors, or at least this is maybe what my parents just told me we're legal in Indiana. So we had to cross the border. Again, oh. as a kid, maybe I shouldn't have been doing that. But my first <laughs> tattoo was in Niles, Michigan, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My first tattoo was in Michigan, too. Yeah. <laughs> Bumper stickers could be oh, had of that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you grew up in South Bend. Did you have a creative childhood? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if I was necessarily like presented with a huge amount of creative options. Like I definitely, I I don't think I went to a museum until probably a field trip in like middle school to Chicago, but I definitely gravitated more towards it. I was kind of the more creative artistic type. Yeah. My brother, he definitely thinks on the other side of his head, he's an engineer now. Mm. And yeah, I was not, (laughs) I was not the math girl. (laughs) I was a big reader. So I think a lot of my kind of experience and maybe early artistic impressions came from the books I read and stuff. So how did your creativity manifest? Were you drawing, painting? You know, and it's funny because I've had such an interesting thing about the fact that now I make furniture and this thing of do I call myself an artist and am I allowed to and being a little uncomfortable with that. But yet then I do remember I was always considered the artistic kid. And I'm like, why though? I didn't really, I'm a shit drawer, (laughs) which I wish I was a better sketcher. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I did do like theater and read a lot. I don't know. It just, yeah, I think just the interests that I had were more artistic. <laughs> so Expressive. You sound like an expressive person. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any teenage rebellious years in South Bend, Indiana? Um, <laughs> Did you have to get in trouble in order to prove yourself? Well, it's, this is a funny story, actually, is because, you know, my, my family background was not necessarily the most stable. And I definitely, like, I lived in probably... 14 different places by the time I was 14. And I mean, I actually think that's now where, you know, my affinity for things that belong in a home, you know, really come from. But I kind of just wanted to get out of my house in Indiana as soon as I could. Mm -hmm. And I always thought I had to wait until I was 18 to do that. And then I remember hearing about this thing called boarding school. And I was like, this is genius. (laughs) I can leave four years earlier. And so I found this boarding school and I applied and I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to it because I knew I knew how this was going to go down. So, you know, I went to my mom and kind of showed her the brochure. And she's like, yeah, that's all good. But like, that's a pipe dream. Like, look at the price on that. And I was like, well, actually, and then like gave her the letter that they'd given me a full ride. So she couldn't really say no. So that's it. I left. I went to military boarding school and I woke up to a cannon at 645 every morning for four years of my life. Oh, my God. What's military boarding school like? Well, and that's why, sorry, that's why the question you asked before is that's the funny thing is most kids get sent there because they are bad. <laughs> I was the only one that was like, please, elective. I, I mean, I think it was amazing. I didn't realize how conservative it was, I think, until I was out of it. But 
you know, for me, it was great freedom because I could do all the things I wanted. All of my girlfriends, I didn't have to say like, hey, can I get a ride to so-and-so's house? Can I do this? Like they were all next to me. Mm. And so I kind of, I, I feel like I kind of went to college at 14 instead of 18. I mean, you know, once I started hitting like 17 and I still didn't have a driver's license and other people had, you know, waitressing jobs and I was still not experiencing that, maybe I started to miss it. But other than that, like I was digging shit there, which is really strange because most people are miserable there. But <laughs> well, I mean, just thinking about military boarding school to me sounds like something that's super disciplined. Like, were you super disciplined to begin with and it was easy for you to adjust or was this like super shocking for you? And then no. are you still very disciplined now just from having <laughs> oh. gone to military boarding school? No, on all regards. <laughs> <laughs> no, it actually is. I mean, it's a really good school. It was a military boarding school and has been around. I mean, when I was there, I think it had been open for like 100 years or something. But around the Vietnam War, when, you know, certain military was not, you know, attractive, enrollment went down a lot. And it had been a guys only school. So they let girls in around the war. And so the girls school won. I mean, statistically, it was great. There was like one girl for every four guys. But the, like the women's uh, military system was different. So I, I will say is all mm -hmm. of the, you know, really rigorous discipline that the guys had to have, like, what is it? The hospital corners, I think is what they called it on their beds. But anyway, not much of that stuff happened for, for the girls. So I was definitely exposed to it. But I feel like we got the like bark note version of military. Mm. I'm wondering if it felt like some much needed structure and stability coming from an entirely possible actually interesting you say that that's never occurred to me but no I was in a big rush to be an adult and so the idea that I could this felt as much as I'd ever been on my own as it could so yeah I think that's entirely possible mm -hmm. I mean you know I spent I didn't even go home for the summers I actually would spend them with my different girlfriends like I spent a summer in New Mexico I spent a summer in Nashville Tennessee and so I think it was a mix of structured independence I guess yeah which I think is what leads people to be an adult. And that's what I was looking for. So yeah, absolutely. Are those girlfriends still like your role dogs? Are they, are you? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, you know, we kind of are, are in and out, but it's, it's interesting because there's not a single one that I couldn't like pick up the phone and tomorrow be like, oh my God, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's been kind of funny. Like every once in a while, someone from military school will reach out like on social media or something. And yeah, it's, it's very much like, oh, we were all in this together type atmosphere. Yeah. So you were there for four years and then what, what happened? Did you decide to go to college or did you go right into a career? It sounds like you really wanted to get started to being an adult right away. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted to like pursue that adulthood in New York City. Mm. No idea why. I don't know if it was a movie I saw, but that was, New York was always kind of my siren song. So again, before I knew about the boarding school where I went, I was always like, I'm going to 18, as, or excuse me, to New York as soon as I'm 18. But then having gone to the school, which is great, they had a really good college preparatory like program. I hadn't really necessarily thought about school or what I wanted to study, but no one there didn't go to college. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to apply to every New York school in which everyone gives me the most money. That's where I'm going to go. So I did go to college for like a couple months, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if I'd say I regret not staying. I'm kind of a firm believer that we make whatever choices we're capable of making at the time, like those are the right ones you make. But yeah, I basically went there and I just needed to get to New York and, you know, get my feet on the ground. And because I was studying acting, you know, a lot of the kids were going out to get agents. And so I went to some meeting and I think the woman said to me, well, have you ever considered doing print work? And I was like, no, but I'll do whatever. And so they sent me on an audition that day that I booked, which I didn't know until, you know, 
probably the week after I dropped out of college, that you never book the first one. And you book like one out of 20, maybe. But I booked the first audition I went on, and it was <laughs> so unsexy. I was the Monistat one-day treatment girl for quite a while. Um, <laughs> oh, you know what? Thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> anyway, it goes on to say that I became a model, but my agency, we, the kind of inside joke was like, I'm the only model that I can't get a photographer to ask me to take off my clothes. I'm the like anything itchy below the waist girl is what I got cast for. No idea why. <laughs> so I booked, I booked this job and it was like $4,000 for half a day and coming from, you know, Indiana and very little money. I was just like, this is incredible. I don't need school. And I like, I have you know, found this. I mean, and, and that being said, I did quit and actually worked for, for many, many years. But so did not go to college, I guess you would say. Well, I would like to know a little bit more about this model actress life. You know, growing up reading books and, and seeing, you know, looking at advertisements and all of that, I always thought that was like the ultimate job because mm-hmm. it did seem like just really, I don't know, fancy and like cushy mm-hmm. and stuff. Did you feel like that? To be honest, I don't think I ever really did. But it is interesting. I think it's actually both worlds. You know, for me, I think that it was great because you get to, you know, go to different locations. I think for the most part, you're working with really great people. You have fun on set. You get to experience different people. And I honestly think that I was too young to realize that it was important to me or would be that I wasn't really making anything or that I was like making something for someone else. You know, but in general, I thought it was a really good experience. I, I loved it. I made a lot of really good friends. And, you know, but the other side, like, I remember the first time, God, like, my first real beat in the water modeling story was, and, and I'm a redhead, but uh, a lot of times as a redhead, you get cast as kind of the minority. So you'll get on these jobs where they have, like, a blonde, a brunette, like, you know, the African-American girl, the redhead, whatever. So I think there were, like, three or four girls on set this day. And, you know, we took a break for lunch. And, you know, one of these girls comes up to me and she's got like a little thing of Vaseline and she's like, do you want some? And I was like, oh, um, okay. I thought she was like telling me my lips were chapped. I felt kind of bad. And I was like, okay, whatever. And then they always served the most amazing food, which I thought was ironic there. But so then I just went and ate and whatever. And so then you get touch-ups after lunchtime and, you know, the makeup artist sits down. He's like, honey, he's like, you put it behind your teeth. So when you throw up, it doesn't rot them. He's like, you don't need chapstick. (laughs) And I was like, oh shit, I'm not in Indiana anymore. So like... I mean, there are parts of it that are hugely ugly. And I think that I was fortunate enough. Uh, well, one, I didn't start until later. A lot of girls get into that industry when they're, you know, 14, 16, 17. And because I'd been on my own and stuff. And, you know, I don't want to say that girls who have experienced something, you know, not great, don't have a good head on their shoulders. But I think that, I don't know, I managed to say out of a lot of the kind of, you know, typical, I don't know, stereotypical bad things yeah, about the it. Stuff, yeah, the bad stuff you can fall into with the wrong crowd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you feel like on some levels too, you were able to start to harness your own personal expression, both in print and in the acting jobs? Mm. Like, was it, was it a form of expression that you started to feel like that you were honing and controlling? Or was did you feel like a blank canvas where you kind of just had to show up and be whatever they needed you to be that day? Uh, it is, again, a little of both. I think I didn't realize some of these things until afterwards. Like, I wasn't asking these questions of myself at the time mm-hmm. because I don't think it's a career that particularly fosters those type of conversations, which is not necessarily bad. It's neither here nor there. I, I don't think I was an unintelligent person and I wasn't, you know, seeking out culture in my life. But aside from that, in terms of personal fulfillment and like how I was growing in my profession, yeah, I needed to make sure that like 
my nails were done every day, my legs were shaved and like, you know, your bikinis waxed and you always carry like a bikini around in your, your purse in case you get called on audition. So like, there's not that much personal development aside from, well, this, I will say, I think this was very valuable is being able to go in and just not give a shit, you know, because I realized at one point that everyone in the room kind of has the same insecurities Mm -hmm. and I don't know. There's something very, that kind of distills that fear when everyone has it. And then you can either just choose to do it or not. And so I will say, strangely enough, I think it gave me quite a bit of confidence, but not the type that you'd think. It wasn't because like, oh, people think you're pretty, you're getting your hair done, your makeup done, or someone sees you in a magazine. It was actually like, no, this is a choice. I could actually focus on this and be completely neurotic, or I can just like, you know, get work done, get paid and then go home. And so I think it was part of the latter. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You, You learn from an early stage, like what's important to spend your fucks on. Yeah, and I also think there's something kind of, like universal and maybe even communal about once you recognize that everyone does have those fears too. Yeah. Or the same insecurities in one shape or another. So I think, yeah, that was really valuable to have control of that. And I don't say that I always do, but I do think in, in that profession I did. And I, yeah, I think that's really valuable to be able to hold on to yourself in the middle of whatever it is, whether I was in like a vanity hurricane or someone's in an actual, you know, some other critical point in their life. Oh, I like that you said vanity hurricane. I've never heard it described (laughs) that way. Is that a thing? I don't know. I kind of made it up. But yeah, I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So help us understand the transition from model actress to now welding metal worker, (laughs) furniture maker. It's kind of understood in your brand story that a bad breakup motivated you to learn welding. And so can you kind of break that down for us? (laughs) You know, it's, it's made for a good tagline, you know, pissed off model picks up welding torch. (laughs) But yeah, I, you know, I met a boy and I feel like that's where so much of my troubles begun, (laughs) but no, I, I met someone and yeah, we were together for quite a while, engaged for quite a while, which I think is, is probably a red flag I should have looked at, but we broke up and it was kind of like slow and abrupt at the same time, but it was, it was pretty painful. And I needed to, well, number one, just in terms of logistics, I hadn't protected myself particularly well with the house that we'd bought. So I found myself moving out of a really beautiful home to like a small shitty studio apartment that I had no furniture for. And yeah. And I remember like, again, there was a point in the relationship where we were kind of on life support for a second. And I remember saying that I was thinking about learning to weld and I've already always been like kind of into home design. I've had a couple different houses that I've renovated and things like that. It was part of a conversation, you know, where anyway, basically my ex is this very like proper English guy. And again, I'm not saying anything. He, I relayed all of this to him. I, it wouldn't surprise him, but he's so like, proper and he's an actor and his fingers are very clean. And he started kind of mansplaining the way I should go about learning welding. (laughs) And it kind of revolved around like taking, you know, the proper course and, you know, it's very litigious and safety gear. And I just, I don't know. I personally think that like, I don't know when I'm not in a great place, I can be kind of reckless. And I also think I make my best decisions when I'm there sometimes. And I just was like, fuck it. And so I just decided I was going to twirl my hair and get some sketchy guys in the valley to teach me to weld. And for the first several months, I was probably welding at someone. But it turned into something really amazing. I mean, the guys were, you know, one was, he made like security gates. Another guy was an auto mechanic. It was a very like trade industry, you know, just a garage in the back of, you know, this, this shop in the valley. And I stayed there for almost a year. And they seriously, they wouldn't take anything from me in payment except for beer. And they taught me pretty much everything I knew to get started. 
And I was using a lot of their, their scraps, kind of actually how some of the, the pieces that I still make actually started was based on the pieces that were made available to me right then. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was it. I was just pissed off and I started welding. I mean, and again, it was mainly to build myself some furniture. And then I started building it for friends and they're like, enough, like put this shit on Etsy. And then I did. So. Oh, okay. So that's how it started. So you've established mm-hmm. yeah, this, yeah. this brand, Whorehouse, which is an incredible name, by the way. Um, do <laughs> you want you. to tell us kind of how that, well, first of all, how the brand name came about and then just how you kind of got started with, with your brand and getting recognition for what you were making? I mean, the genesis of the name Whorehouse, it wasn't like when it first, when I first made up, I was not actually thinking that I was starting a company. I just needed a name for the Etsy store and or was already taken. And so it did actually get me thinking. And so I started looking at domain names and I found that Whorehouse was already taken by a man. And so at that point I was like, you know what? Fuck it. If anyone can add the WH, it needs to be a woman. And I guess now I'm a welder too. So like, I think I can do it. And like at first, it was very much a tongue-in-cheek thing. But as the business began to grow, I could feel how polarizing it was. And I mean, like, it is really difficult to get a bank to print the word whore on your checks or to put it on a credit card. <laughs> like, you get a lot of callbacks. Like, we just have some questions regarding the nature of your business. But then, yeah, I just I hit this fork in the road where there were a lot of people that I really respected asking me to reconsider the name because... Not necessarily because they were offended, but because they were worried other people would be offended and they thought it would hold me back. And so I actually, I had one conversation that really actually cemented the name for me though. And it was uh, with a designer whose work I was really, really obsessed with. And we had almost an entire bottle of whiskey and we were just talking about work and inspiration. And he came out and he told me that he thought I should change the name of my company because no one in the design or art community would ever take me seriously. And it was only when he said that he thought the name was juvenile that it actually really resonated. He was saying it was like being rebellious for rebellious sake. And it, it did. He like gave me some serious pause. So, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about rebellion and like what purpose it serves. And, you know, I think that the thought process and the conversations that you have with yourself and others is really, really important. Like, actually, I mean, Amy, you talk a lot about punk and how it impacted you, I think. And that I also think, you know, like our current political and gender climate. And I I just, I think that there is essentially a little bit of a revolution going on. And I I feel like it starts with a conversation and, you know, it's, it's a funny reference, I guess, but I was actually just reading like a couple days ago, there was this article with Jay-Z in the New York times. And he was talking about just, you know, Trump racism. And he mentioned, I think the Sterling guy is his name. He's the the Clippers owner. Mm -hmm. I think he's the owner who got kicked out for like this racist recorded conversation. Yeah. And Jay-Z said he was like, he actually thought that firing and banning him was the wrong call because all it did was get rid of the symptom and not address the problem at all. Because what it did is it like allowed for that type of behavior, which he was insinuating is very prevalent in professional sports culture, just to like remain hidden and let it to continue to exist and, and fester. And I thought it was a really interesting point. So I just personally, I really love this journey that this word for me and at least I think the people in my life has taken. And so, you know, that I decided to call my company this and it turned into a conversation. I feel like it's been really rewarding. Yeah, like based on where I was in my life and where I started this company from, like personally, I mean, as a woman, I think it's even in the types of furniture that I was building. I think that rebellion was really present and I think it's really needed. And to be honest, it was kind of 
electrifying and a little bit addicting. I, I really enjoyed that part of the process. So anyway, I, de- I decided to keep the name and I was also poor. I didn't want to buy any more domain names. Um, <laughs> but like as a woman whose previous currency had been her appearance and now a woman who's working and struggling and thriving in a primarily male dominated profession, you know, I didn't realize that I had actually been pushing boundaries. I'd just been doing what I wanted to do, like one foot in front of the other. And it was only kind of, I don't know, like omnisciently or retrospectively, did I realize that I'd already kind of created that brand identity in the empowerment and that, that vibe. And so, you know, I think that now the name Whorehouse, it's really just a litmus test for my tribe or my demographic, I suppose. And I mean, like Belly Times, they just decided to, on their own, rename my company to Megan Hill Designs for the first time they featured my work. And finally, a third time's the charm. They finally printed the word whore. But I mean, to me and the people in my life, I think that the name's definitely, not to be super lofty about it, but it's at least grassroots. It's definitely taken on this semantic shift from something that was specifically meant to devalue. And now it's, like, for me, been taken back and it's empowering. And so I'm really proud of that. That's the long-winded answer of, the name that was off the cuff that I've learned to actually very authentically defend and be proud of. Well, I, I love it and you should be proud for sure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. 
ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we should explain to our listeners while your brand is whorehouse, you do some creative graphics with it to separate the WH from or. Thank you for saying that because, yeah, you're right. The, the definition of the word or is actually to extract something of value. And it, it's typically meant for metal. And that's really resonated with me on so many regards, whether it was in the beginning, I was using scraps from guys that were leaving it. I was getting value out of the kind of shit show that my life had turned into. And, you know, now it's finding value in a word that specifically was meant to devalue. It sounds to me like you are extracting something of value and you are starting a conversation and function is is a gateway to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you're making furniture is part of what you're doing, but not all of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I really feel like this career that, again, it, it didn't necessarily mean to get on and a name that I kind of haphazardly chosen has taken me on this path of two different directions. One is conversations and whether it's with myself, whether it's with other people, or I don't know, just what it means to, to be a woman. And, but, you know, to take some of your power back, whoever you are. And then there's a whole other part of it, the technical side of it, because I'm actually building the pieces myself and all of that. But yeah, it's been a really pleasant surprise how much the branding has become really personal to a lot of people. And 
people revealed things to me, whether it's just their opinions. I have been shocked as to how strongly people react to the name, whether it's positively or not, and or sharing their own experiences. You know, I've had people reach out to me on social media and be like, I'm actually a sex worker. I'm offended that you're calling yourself that. I've had people say I'm a sex worker and I think you're amazing what you're doing. So, and, and those are all people that I've followed up and had conversations with. And it's really, really interesting. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of, yeah, a whole other branch of, of the design business that I'm in now. But yeah, I love that part of it. I really do. Yeah. I bet that is fascinating. I mean, it's all, all good and to be said, you know, some like, you know, white girl ex model is going to like call herself a whore when she's never actually been trafficked or had, you know, things like that. And so, yeah, it's led to really, really amazing things. And I feel like, that's the thing too, is as soon as like, I'll get a first comment from social media and it'll either be positive or negative. It's very one way or the other. If you do respond to it and try and do it in a disarming way, it starts a really interesting conversation. It's part of a longer story, but it's definitely started to fold itself into my business because I I agree. I don't think that I should just take a name that's going to offend people. No offense. I don't give a shit if it offends men, but if there's a woman that's actually being you know, is in that situation and is offended for it, that reason. Like, I think she has a right to tell me. And so, you know, I'm starting to work things in where certain percentages of proceeds go back to specific trafficking groups and stuff like that. So I'm really looking into that. And that's just part of how, you know, having this name that creates a lot of opinions has led me in a lot of different directions that I probably would never have found on my own. You have a provocative brand and it should be noted that in your branding materials, specifically your Instagram feed and some of the imagery and videos on your website Mm -hmm. where you kind of tell the story of the brand. They're very artistic and provocative. And you, you know, have a chapter in your past of using your body to express yourself Mm -hmm. as both an actress and a model. Mm -hmm. And you meld or weld those things (laughs) together really beautifully in your branding materials. And so I'm kind of asking this from a creative process perspective. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you conceive of and execute your images? And does it feel empowering or does it feel like just a marketing challenge? It definitely doesn't feel like a chore. I definitely really enjoy it. I mean, yeah, my dad was a photographer and obviously I spent a lot of time around cameras, but fashion has always been a huge influence in my life. Like, I think that's why part of why I wanted to go to New York and, and it still is, I feel like it's representative of of my work and I love, you know, just beautiful photographs and print images and how they can create a story and all these things. And so, you know, I think my kind of watershed moment was because, so after I'd gone through this breakup and I decided to kind of go in this, you know, like crash course in the depths of the valley, I basically just kind of stayed to myself for about a year and just worked all the time. And, you know, I went to Trader Joe's one day after like a 16 hour day and I like I was getting some fruit and stuff. And so I wanted to wash my hands and I asked one of the staff if I could use the restroom. And they told me no, because they thought I was homeless. <laughs> and I like looked down. And I was like, oh, my God, I do look like a Dickens, like chimney sweep or something. <laughs> and, so, and I was so I was so incredulous. I was like, do you know, I'm still repped by Ford. <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't say I didn't say it, but but it was it was interesting. It was a time. And so it was literally, I think, the next day that I was like, you know what? maybe it's time to reclaim a little bit more of my femininity and get back in touch with what I used to do. And I think that was like the next day was the first time. I also, that's the other thing too, is I, I kind of a control freak, probably why I end up building all of my own things, but I, I take all the images myself too. 
So I was photographing my furniture in my place and I just decided to put the timer on and like hopped in the, the photo and it was kind of the genesis. It just, I don't know. And that particular one wasn't as crazy as provocative as some of them have gotten, but it was just, I don't know. It felt like, it just felt like a good fit. It felt like two things had kind of merged. And so, yeah, it's been a really good way to kind of balance what can be a very like physically grueling actual manual labor job from time to time. I mean, it's not like I'm fabricating every day. A lot of my days now are email and this and that, but yeah, it just, it was a good way to balance and still feel like myself a little bit in this. Do you generate ideas and then storyboard them out? Do you have expensive equipment? I mean, totally talking shop now. <laughs> I don't. Most of stuff is iPhone. Oh, if it's product shots, I usually I still borrow a friend's camera frequently. But no, for the most part, sometimes, I mean, only because the marketing and the social media part has kind of become a big part of the branding is I'll try and, you know, stockpile ideas here and there as they come. Mm -hmm. But frequently it just kind of happens a little bit more organically. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous. Like, oh, I'm just in my shop welding. All of a sudden all my clothes fall off. But it is like as you're building something, you're like, oh, wait, this would be an interesting idea. And great. If I'm not on a deadline, I'll stop and do it. Otherwise, you know, I'll I'll hold it for next time. But I wouldn't go so far as storyboarding. No, it's usually just taking a bunch of shots and kind of looking at them afterwards. Uh, honestly, I think the sometimes it's the captions and things like that are the things where more thought goes into because it's like, what are you what are you really saying? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's like it's one thing to take a photo of yourself bending over welding. It's another thing to be like no, I'm making the bed that I sleep in. Like I actually made this bed, you know? And so that might be where some more of the kind of, you know, distilling of it goes. This is a little off topic, but you said something that was fascinating to me. Uh, you said, if I'm not on deadline, mm. does that mean you have days where you're not on deadline? There's different kinds of deadlines. <laughs> yeah. I haven't slept last night. I did an all-nighter. And that doesn't happen that much anymore. But there are gnarly deadlines. <laughs> and then there's just the deadlines that I live under all the time. But yeah, essentially in this business, you're always on a deadline. But sometimes they let you sleep at night. Are you pretty good at uh, time management? Uh, getting better at it. <laughs> getting better at it. I ask for a lot of advice on that. That's refreshing. <laughs> Okay, then in that case, no, I'm shit at it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on the work smarter, not harder thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah aren't we all? Yeah. Always? Well, but, you know, that's the thing, too, is it's I, I have this conversation with myself where I'll be building a piece and say it's a piece that I've built several times. Like, I don't ever want to make a customer feel like I'm not invested in whatever piece I'm making. But say it's a piece I've made many times before. Or a lot of times I just get commissioned to do custom projects or something, too. But as I'm doing it, I'll be like, oh, wait. And it gives me an idea for something else that I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. And I really want to drop everything and go do that. But then, you know, there's the voice that's like, well, no, that's not responsible. You're on a deadline. Then, like, no, that's actually the most responsible thing because that's how the next, you know, new thing comes out. And you have to actually foster that as well. Like that's just as much part of the work as it is. And that's a really hard thing mm -hmm. to like, I am Midwestern to my core where structure might be a problem. Work ethic is not. So I can work myself into the ground and then feel like bad for taking a break to have a cup of tea or something. Yeah, man, is that a Midwestern thing? I totally relate to that. I think so. I, I really do think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I like will feel guilty if I'm not working and by not working, I mean, I'm probably like reading a design magazine and trying to like come up with the next idea. So you, I feel like in this business, or at least when you start your own business, I think it's probably the same for most people. You're kind of always working, Yeah. but to be able to delegate because the, the things that are more intangible or don't lead to immediate paychecks. Yeah. 
I mean, they're the ones that are going to lead to the bigger paychecks. It's just down the road. It's hard to kind of govern that voice of like, no, do I need to do the thing that's due on Wednesday or this great idea that I think is the next best thing? And I think you need to do both of them, really. It's frustrating because I feel like, you know, in a lot of industries where people are are doing things, making things, designing things, they need that creative time, whether mm-hmm. they have their own business or whether they're working for a corporation. It's really important that we value like ideating, brainstorming, dreaming, and, and just creative processing time. And I don't think that we're quite there yet. Oh, not at all. I think, I think it's, I agree with you. I think it's completely necessary. And I also think that like, I'm completely uncomfortable with it, even my own management time. Um, but yeah. And too, like, you know, when, when we run our own businesses and we're our own boss, we're probably like way harder on yeah. ourselves than, than I think we would be, you know, if we had a boss. Yeah. Honestly, like tougher, you know, and more critical maybe. And I haven't given myself a promotion in years. <laughs> Amy, you, you deserve more money, Amy. <laughs> yeah. I want to raise. <laughs> I, I do want to talk about your furniture and your creative process too. You mentioned before that a lot of the, uh, or some of the ideas that you have for pieces come from when you were working with scrap pieces. Can you talk a little bit about how ideas for your pieces kind of generate? And then like, how does that creative process play out? I usually kind of get an idea and I sit on it for a while. And by sit on it, I, I mean, it's with me. Like it's, it's just kind of in the back of my head and it either goes away or it builds upon itself. So I either lose interest and, or, you know, I start to really kind of dig into it. So it takes a period of time, but usually those inspirations come from, I mean, I'm a big reader, so I would say it's frequently books or it's somehow fashion, whether it's a magazine or, you know, something I've seen online. And, you know, I feel like that's more the kind of concept ideas are the bigger ones. And then, you know, where it gets a little bit, honestly, more exciting to me and a little bit less esoteric is when I'm actually building things, I'll start to think about like, oh, well, I'm building this table this way. Wait, this idea that I had that say, like I have this idea for, I'm, I'm working on a table now, I'm calling it the exorcism table, which is like actually like the idea of something being pulled out of, like exercising something from yourself. Mm-hmm. And so while I'm building something, I'll be like, oh, wait, you know, maybe this corner, this detail, that would be good for this or a different detail that I haven't thought of. So the actual physical process of building, I feel like is where the most like grit of it happens. Yeah. You've got to make those decisions kind of while you're immersed in the material and in the physics of the whole thing. I think some of it comes from using remnant material and stuff. You know, I grew up not necessarily with, I didn't have a lot of money at all. And so there were a lot of things that were kind of aspirational to me, but I was always kind of, I don't know. I just grew up with this idea that money was always scarce. And so the idea of wasting anything was always really, I don't know. It just didn't sit well with me. And so I feel like Part of the way that I start building things is that has been ingrained into me so much that as I'm building things, I realize like, oh, I have this piece of material here already, or this exists already. Like it's kind of, but having my hands in it, physically building it helps me build the next piece because it's already on hand as opposed to, I mean, there's a lot of designers and this is not a criticism. It's neither here nor there, but a lot of designers don't build their own things and that freeze them up and they just make huge ideas and then other people execute them. Whereas in some ways, I think that, you know, my ideas come from materials that already exist, or this would be easy to make, or this would be hard to make, or you know what, this would be fucking incredible to make this out of this material. So that's also part of the kind of hands-on vibe, I guess. I really relate to that because I'm a very hands-on person too. And I, I kind of feel like ideas start in the brain, but Mm -hmm. they really finish in the hands. 
I think that designers in in many cases increase their vocabulary exponentially when they know how the materials mm-hmm. feel and work together and the mechanics of joining them and all of those processes I think actually help expand the language that you get to express yourself with. But it also like activates a certain part of the brain that is solving problems and moving parts around and kind of tinkering. I had no idea how much, which it was just silly now that I'm in it to realize this didn't occur to me, but how much math is going to be involved in what I do now. <laughs> yeah. I think that number one, hands down, I think that like, for example, anytime I'm working with a designer, it's always so much easier if the designer has a knowledge of how things are built. Mm-hmm. They understand what they're asking for. We can get to the, the bottom line quickly. Or if I'm like, well, we actually can't build it this way. We have to do it this way because of this. They get it. Yeah. You know, so, so. I would always want to come from it this route where I'm the fabricator because it helps inform my knowledge. But on the other hand, I do think it's, it can be limiting at times because like I said, it kind of only occurs to me if it's in my face or, you know, right in my hands. Is there like a favorite part of your process? Is it the marketing? Is it the actual welding? Is it the getting a new job to do? Like what's your favorite thing? It sounds a little vanilla, but it's, it actually is a little of all of those things. I mean, I do really love the time, like what I call downtime is when I'm kind of doing R&D, whether it's looking at a design magazine or, I don't know, watching a documentary or something like that and developing the new ideas and things that keep your head flowing aside from the channels it's usually in, in my day to day. So I love that part of it. The marketing part of it, like we were talking about starting this conversation about something that's much bigger than design, which I didn't intend to, but I'm fully in it and invested in it. I love that part of it. I also really, I still love prototyping. I get to do it. So infrequently, like every once in a while, I'll just have a complete meltdown and be like, I just, I building something for myself. This is ridiculous. <laughs> like, because it, it just feels like such an extravagant thing to do. Like I should be working on this or I should be doing this, but just, no, I'm going to build a piece just for the sake of building it. I really, really love doing that as well. And then I think having a finished piece, honestly, so I, I do a lot of commission work and a lot of collaborations, but I also have pieces that I consider in my line, which are pieces that I've created and kept creating and have kind of evolved into ones that, you know, I just sell kind of as is. And all of those were ones that, like I said, I was always improving on them or as I was building one for someone, I'd be like, well, maybe next time I should do this or think of this. And then all of a sudden, like that itch will just be gone. And I'll be like, oh, I actually don't think there's anything left. I'm happy just with this piece. And then that's kind of where it rests. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I love about those ones, and there's not, I probably have like 10 of those, but is it, and again, this might be like, like a married spouse who has a hot like husband, you know what I mean? And they've been married for years. Like every once in a while, I'll still look over and be like, Oh, I still like that. Like I don't, those pieces that I've made that that itch is gone. And I've been like, no, this is where I want it. I don't get tired of looking at them ever. I know that's such a like, like, Oh, mirror, mirror on the wall. But I love it. Like, I'll love to walk into my bedroom and see like a coffee table that I made and I still love it like years later. So that's also a really exciting and kind of exhilarating part of it for me, I think. So I want to ask you a couple personal questions. You've been, you've been pretty revealing already, but I'm particularly fascinated by the way that you've been able to harness your need to make things your ability to express yourself, your femininity and your toughness and all of these things together into a a beautiful swirl of both product branding and, and humanity. And it's a really liberating. Oh my gosh, just keep going with that. (laughs) 
what I'm getting at is it's like it's a very liberal, liberating and powerful place to be when you can integrate all aspects of yourself into a whole and totally own that and put that out into the world and defend it like you do your brand name and just be like really comfortable in your skin. And I think we're all on some level, some some part of that process. Like I'm wondering where you feel like you are. Are you fully integrated or are you still kind of piecing yourself together? (laughs) Where are you in that? I don't think integration necessarily means like you've figured it all out and you're done. I think it just means the fragments of yourself are now all working in cooperation with each other. That's interesting. Don't you feel like you can navigate the, the situations of unrest a lot more powerfully when you're not fighting yourself? <laughs> yeah, no, that definitely. Like learning when to like shut your own noise off and be like, no, you're not serving anyone. Yeah, like yeah. I think I'm learning to handle myself a little bit better as I would hope anyone, you know, does as they spend more time with themselves. You know what I mean? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you asked me that is, is I do feel like I think here's what I'll say is when people say to me, like, what would your perfect life look like? It would look like mine cleaned up. I might not have as many like the, the things that I don't I'm not really good at, which is like emails and taxes and stuff like that. And all of the kind of basically monetizing something that's creative is the fastest way to get you out of creativity. Yeah. yeah and yeah. it's really, really difficult. And I struggle with that. So, but that's the thing is, I guess, I, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but in terms of integration, my perfect life would be a little bit of that kind of stress taken off and doing exactly what I'm doing. So if that makes it integrated, yeah, absolutely. And I also feel like, you know, we were talking about modeling and is modeling just kind of something that is just vapid. But no, I actually feel like I've been able to extract something of value aside from just going on a few nice trips or, you know, whatever, seeing your face in a magazine to bring it into this and actually turn it into something else and enhance the brand and the design part of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that part of the integration of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what you struggle with is really what a lot of small business owners who are also the maker of their product struggle with because you know, as, as you become more successful or as you get more jobs, you have to do more administrative work. And so it takes you away from that time being creative and th- and that can be pretty frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I really, I haven't figured that out yet. That's the hardest part of what I'm I doing. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if anybody's figured it out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I look at someone, I'll be like, they've, they've done it. They, they keep their ducks in a row, but I think that it's been really nice that people are so forthcoming at least in, in kind of my community in this industry, I found. Like, I remember I had this moment when I did the mm-hmm. show. It was this guy who's actually, he's, a, he's an amazing designer. He's doing really, really well now. But he's from Indiana, and him and his wife were there. We kind of had this, you know, affinity. And he, you know, started talking. And I forget what he said. And I was just like, oh, my God, this show's going to make me so poor. Like, I can't believe how much money I spent. I was just like, win all this tirade. And then he kind of looked at me. I was like, oh, oops, TMI. And he was like, no, thank you so much for saying that. And that's the thing is what I, I realized is that I actually think that. I think no matter... I mean, I don't want to say no matter. I hope at some point it (laughs) plateaus a little bit. But I really think everyone's in their own contextual version of this if they're kind of making things and trying to start their own business. At least that's what I tell myself is everyone's just as as messy as I am with it. I want to talk about some of the comments that you receive on your Instagram. Oh, let's talk about those. (laughs) Yeah, so I know you talked earlier about how you like to engage in dialogue. And a lot of times the first comment's pretty polarizing, but then you kind of get into this gray area of like, this is how I feel and this is why I feel this way, et cetera. But you also (laughs) receive comments for people who 
just think your images are unsafe. Like you're not wearing the proper gear or whatever, but they don't understand that it's like an artistic photo. And it's not necessarily like you're not there in a bikini all day welding on top of, you know, (laughs) in like this weird (laughs) contortionist how can they not get it? That's the thing. You hit the nail on the head, which is, is, is that's exactly it is that, you know, I don't understand why people they'll see a fashion shoot and I don't know it's like an editorial, right. And there's a model posing as, I don't know, like a pilot and she's flying a plane in like a bikini and Louboutins and people completely understand that that's an altered reality and that it's meant to elicit something and only for that. Right. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I do it and and the, the thing that really bothers me is I do think that the people who are coming after me and, that, and not like I'm being witch hunted or anything, but like these comments that we're talking about, they're people that I would consider to be friends and colleagues, I would think. And so it's just like, I, I don't need any more middle-aged welders from the Midwest who have Bible verses in their profile handle telling me that I'm a dumb bitch. They hope I get terrible burns for welding my underwear. I can't possibly actually be a welder because I'd never do that. And oh my, everyone's favorite like hashtag is OSHA is going to get you. Like, actually, I only work for myself. Probably not going to come knocking on my door. But, you know, that's the thing is I just don't understand how they can't kind of separate those two things. I'll say this too. And I just like, I don't know. I'm going to get not bashful, but I think that it would be a very different story if I got those comments regarding the marketing and the branding if my work looked like it was still on Etsy or it was like Brooklyn circa 2000 industrial stuff. And it was like, I think that, how do you think that I really and consistently build these things if I don't have, you know, proper grasp on the tools that I need, how to use them, the safety gear. But it's just, ultimately, I feel like it is a social experiment to observe. And I think it's fun to laugh at. It's an interesting rock to look under. I mean, and it's this again, ongoing conversation that our conversation seems to be about. And I love that I can actually take their comments. I can put them on the website as testimonials and that I'm talking about it and talking about why it happens. You know, like, I don't know, is it misogyny? Is it just sad people? Like whatever. And it was funny, actually, the idea of putting it on the website came from, Jamie, did you ever go to that restaurant? I think it was called Craft and Commerce in San Diego. I think it's closed now. I didn't go, but I, I know about it. Yeah, I heard of it. So they used to, when you go to the restroom there, they'd hired actors to read all of their bad uh, Yelp reviews on loop. And it was amazing. It was like all these actors that were mocking like the wax tipster mustaches and like suspenders and all this. And I just thought it was genius. And it was also delightful. Like it took something that was kind of negative energy and like hate being spewed and it turned into this fun thing. And also people were like, why are people saying this? And I think you can't hurt to ask that. I mean, it's kind of an endless source of entertainment, the, the things that I get. Yeah, I think it's hilarious. First of all, it's just a very simplistic lack of understanding of the kind of editorial and the kind of art that you're putting into the image. And I think it highlights this impulse that people have to just be negative. And so they find like a cheap, easy thing to just throw out there and be negative, but it's completely off the mark. (laughs) Even if it weren't off the mark, I think it's people who, I think it's somehow people who are taking it personally. I think you're right. Maybe it's, it's trade welders who on some level find it insensitive that you are using their livelihood in your art. I don't know. Honestly, some of, I get some pretty nasty comments from women welders. I mean, that being said, like most of them are like, you know, it's like sisterhood and it's fine. But yeah, so I don't know if it's that. I think it's like saying something that I think what they think I'm saying is like, I can do it like this. And I think in some of my photos, like if I'm, if I'm welding on top of my table and I'm in my underwear, 
like we've just acknowledged it's this kind of different reality, but to them, I'm saying, this is easy. This is a, such an easy job. I can do it without any safety mm-hmm. gear, without knowing what I'm doing in my underwear. And so I think that might be the thread line. Somehow they think I'm saying that they're not skilled. I don't know. It's interesting because I, I know it's silly that it still surprises anyone that people can kind of be that mean. I just don't get the tendency. I don't know what it would take. Someone would have to do something very mean, like a, a mean post or something that felt inhumane for me to actually like comment aside from like friends, like you go girl. But for me to actually like write something anonymously, whereas criticizing mm-hmm. someone, I feel like something would ha- someone would have to be doing something very, like very offensive to me, you know, or something that was clearly hurting someone else. And in that regard, I'm not at all. So I don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting, but I think you, you may have hit the nail on the head with the way that they feel like you're somehow mocking what they do as being like, super easy or, you know, I don't need all of the safety gear or it's not dangerous or something like that. Do you think this job's easy? And I'd be like, no, I do not. And then we'd be friends, which is so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's weird because yeah, there is a commonality with what you do. Well, I also want to know, like, what if you put that photo in a different context? Like, like take it off of Instagram, right. And put it in a magazine as you're flipping through, like, What's the reaction? Is the reaction different on Instagram than it would be if it was more of like an advertisement in a magazine? Because I think it might also be like how it's being delivered. Because a lot of people are on Instagram thinking Instagram somehow real life because you're taking photos with your phone. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's been coined a thing like Instagram jealousy. It's like, are people seriously like jealous that they're yeah. seeing other people on vacation all the time? Like, no one's life's as nice as Instagram. Like, I feel like we all know that. We've basically given, like, Photoshop a platform for everyone. It's like reading a room. Like, people are writing to me, and they'll say this really harsh comment, and they don't understand that all these people that are like, you go, like, they understand the message behind it. Or, but that's the thing, is, like, if you see a photo in a magazine, there are boundaries there. You're like, I understand. This is not necessarily real. You're probably right. It is exactly what you said. Which is people think somehow it's more true to life, whereas other mediums they understand is not. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I'm wondering how much of it is also like being uncomfortable with women's bodies being the source of desire and then having that somehow like paired with their job. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something there, too, but I'm no psychiatrist. So what do I know? No, but I agree. (laughs) People feel like I'm emasculating them yeah, somehow. Yeah, yeah. I think that really might be it. Is yeah, actually, that's that's interesting. Is maybe it's taking something that they're used to. Like they're used to seeing women in those positions, yeah. being like the centerfold of a magazine or or selling lingerie, right? Not talking about welding. Exactly, but it's that's really just creature comforts, isn't it? Like this is familiar, this is not. But I think it might be that. I think that some of the people who are commenting are like, "No, I'm used to seeing a woman doing this and this." Because, like, don't get me wrong, like, there's not many, like, welding machine shops out there that don't have, you know, the calendars of the girls on the wall. And they're all standing there holding tools. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in a bikini holding tools. But the difference is, is it's really clear that they're not using them. So I think it's the fact that I'm saying I'm using them, which I am. But combining that with a stereotype that they understand that they feel comfortable with, and they don't like that. Like, don't fuck with what I know to be true. You know what I mean? And I, I think it's something in that. Right, and instead of addressing their own discomfort, they're just taking it out on you. Anyway, let's move on to your goals. You know, what, what are you doing with your studio next? Where do you want to go? What are your hopes and dreams? Mm-hmm. I feel like one of the biggest challenges I've been confronted with in the most 
recent, I'd say probably a couple of years of doing this business is just in terms of me being the fabricator and actually building everything, the sustainability of that. Because at some point, and this is a great problem to have, you know, if the demand keeps up, you either start like charging enormous prices and you make a couple pieces a year, or you need to make this scalable a little bit. And that's been a really tough thing because I do feel like, you know, people respond to my brand and I mean, I hope the work itself stands for itself, but they are responding to the brand as well because I'm building it. And I talk about that a lot. And so it felt a little disingenuous to start having other people make stuff. And so in kind of really trying to figure out what the solution for that is, because like, I can't keep working this hard my entire life is I'm really, really committed to trying to find a women's workforce, which doesn't really exist yet, at least in this, this particular field. Every once in a while, I'll get a, a really large job where I just can't handle it on my own and I outsource some of the pieces. Like if I've got an order for 15 tables, you know, I'll make the first one, I bring it in and we make the other ones together or I kind of oversee it. But I feel like the next step that I would really get excited about would be able to scale this larger, make pieces faster, but still have women do it. And I feel like that holds on to the authenticity that I think people respond to. And it's also important to me in the brand. That's really the goal is to be able to grow this business, but to keep it is just like kind of a women strong as it is now and find ways to do that. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's an awesome goal. There's like, for example, there's a nonprofit in Detroit called Women Who Weld. Like what they do is they take women out of shelters and they teach them to weld and they job place them. But a lot of these women right now are getting jobs in like uh, jeweler shops and stuff like that. So they're not quite ready for like full on, like here's my construction drawings, make these pieces. I need them by this time. And like, let's just talk details. Um, But if that existed somewhere, whether it's something that I create or something that exists somewhere else. I love that nature that they're taking women out of shelters. It kind of ties back into this thing of this idea of like, you know, reclaiming this word horror. That kind of feels like the next step in something that I really want to investigate. I mean, I have, but it's, it's doesn't really exist. So kind of creating that feels like a challenge or hoping that it comes in time. And what about personally? <laughs> it's funny. I feel like we were talking about how before, I don't know any entrepreneurs who aren't like this stressed all the time. I don't know any entrepreneurs who are like, Wait, personal life? What's that? Right. <laughs> I know. Can you even imagine like being a grandmother one day? <laughs> like, I have no idea. I'm just to suspend that part of reality for a little while because my life is probably killing myself with all the fumes I'm breathing every day, <laughs> let, alone, <laughs> let alone something more conventional where I have to take care of other beings. You know, I don't know. I mentioned earlier, and I think this is a great place to be, is my best version of my life would look very similar to what it is, but with just a little bit more ease in terms of business and you know, making more projects that I want as opposed to, you know, everyone's got to do certain jobs to pay the bills and stuff, you know, just so a little bit more like the best version of my life. So I guess I'm just kind of working to that. And I'm, I'm happy that that's my goal as opposed to like, I wish I could have someone else's life or, or something completely different. I live and work in my studio. I love that. I have no commute. I can get up. I can build something at two o'clock in the morning if I want to. If I wake up and literally, you know, some people have like a little notebook by the side of their bed. I had a dream. I want to remember this. It gave me an idea. I can literally go and actually build it right then. So I really just want kind of to keep a version of that. And I really want to develop a little bit more of a showroom in the studio, whether that turns into a little bit more of a retail vibe. But anyway, sorry, you just asked me about my personal life and clearly now I'm not doing any stocking work. You'd, yeah, and then you were like, let me think about my personal life and that's all work. So and yeah, no. <laughs> well, yeah. speaking of work, why don't you tell us about a new project that you're working on or something you have coming down the pike or something that's out right now that you'd like to plug so our listeners can check it out? I think there's two things that are kind of exciting me right now. One is uh, I did, Jamie, you have one. Did you get one of the cups? I sure did. And I love it. Yeah. 
school. So I collaborated with a friend of mine. Her company is called GC Collaborative. And she actually had the genius idea. One, she's just been a great friend and a really big advocate for my brand. And she's been saying, like, I want to do a jewelry line with you. And I'm so sensitive about that only because for years I was like a metal worker. And, you know, someone would say, you know, what do you do? I'm a metal worker. Oh, you make jewelry. No. I make big things, like big, big things. Like I hated that they went straight to that. Um, but anyway, you know, she approached me and she was like, I'd really love to do a jewelry line kind of based on your furniture and the, and the vibe behind that. Uh, what do you think? And, you know, what we kind of distilled it down to right now was we're doing these cuffs and the idea is they're sold in pairs. This is you buy two and you give one. And so they, you know, are these leather cuffs that say whore's army on them. And then, which is what I'm going to call my workforce, women's workforce someday. <laughs> so the idea is it comes with this little tag and you're like, you know, I am giving this to you because I think you're a badass woman and I want you to have this. And so that's something that is is kind of new and I'm really excited about just because I love that idea. Like I, I would be so amazed if someone gave a gift to me like that. You know, I think it's a really thoughtful thing. And I also feel like it kind of creates a little bit of a community. And I love that. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, so I've started a line of small goods, which again, getting smaller, but yeah. So just small things like, you know, vanity vessels and, you know, things for kitchens, like salt and pepper shakers and stuff. And just, and I'm trying to put some things out there that are a little bit smaller and a little bit more scalable, but I've got a lot of people that will reach out to me. They like the branding they want a piece of it, but they don't want to buy, you know, like a $7,000 coffee table and they just want something small. And so this kind of line of small goods is something that I've just kind of launched and it seems to be doing well. I'm excited about it. We want our listeners to make sure they can go check out all of your beautiful photography and all of your awesome products and purchase some of these products. Where on the web can our listeners find you? Uh, yeah, well, my website is whorehousestudios.com. And then on the Instagram, I am Whorehouse Studios. And it's house like H-A-U-S, like the fancy German way. Although on the website, you can spell it however you want. It takes you to the right page. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and being so honest. All right, yeah. ladies. Well, thank you so much. I, I don't even have to go finish this table. It's leaving at three and that's wishful thinking. But. Oh, <laughs> good luck. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> She said something that made that when she talked about governing that voice in your head that has to be the steward of your creative time, <laughs> when she said that it it's actually the most responsible thing she can do is to go investigate that new idea, I felt like somebody just like took a ton of bricks off my shoulders because... I don't know if it's a Midwestern thing, like Mm -hmm. she said, but I struggle with that all the time. Like, what's the most responsible thing for me to be doing? And it always feels like it's the thing that's most immediate on my to-do list or that's going to generate an income right away Mm -hmm. or that's somebody's waiting for. And so then I end up prioritizing away the creative time or cramming it into a, a space that's not quite as suitable and so anyway, I, I took a lot from that. I, I think we all have to remind ourselves to carve out the time to be creative. And it's and we have to be really protective of that. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes it can be really hard to do, mm-hmm. especially if you have a lot of responsibilities, whether it's family responsibilities or work responsibilities, business responsibilities. It's, it's hard. Yeah. And it's hard to like not call it like daydreaming or, you know, like just like, 
chilling. Right. At, like she's like, oh, I just flipped through magazines, but that's also like work. And it, it's kind of like I'm on Instagram and I'm looking <laughs> yeah. at photos and my husband's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm working. And he's like, no, you're not. You're looking at photos on Instagram. And I'm like, well, it's part of my job. Yeah, you know, I think that's part of it is I was always accused of daydreaming and dawdling when I was a kid. And now daydreaming and dawdling is part of my creative process. And then I'm like, I don't know if this is okay. Right. <laughs> but you're supposed have to be doing this. to answer to. So it's weird. Like you have to be your own yeah. parent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. I really enjoy the way that she's just so candid about the trials of running your own business. I really appreciate her starting a dialogue with her brand. And even though it was accidental to begin with, she's really embraced it. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that she is comfortable reaching out to people who are also negatively reacting to how she's doing things and trying to start a dialogue with them too. But I, I think it's really important and maybe it's, even more important now that there's a lot more going on with the women's movement this year. It just feels like really necessary. Yeah. And it sounds like that's become a really fulfilling part of the brand too, that she didn't anticipate. And I'm comforted to know that she settled on that name after a lot of thought and consideration. And even after considering that it might be rebellious for rebellion's sake or juvenile, those are pretty common criticisms of a name that's deliberately provocative and to know that she made those decisions after considering that and is now really embracing the dialogue that it's creating is good. I know there are a lot of people, especially bands, bands who come up with like corny names because they're funny in a moment and then like if they do really well 20 years later they still have that name (laughs) and it's like oh man. (laughs) Hello, my website's called Design Milk. Like what? I totally, like, (laughs) there was a point where I was like, oh, maybe I should change this. And then I was like, you know what? It actually represents where I was, but also where I am and my voice. And it's funny and it's kind of goofy and that's kind of who I am. And it doesn't take itself too seriously. So like it, it fits. And I think like once you get comfortable with that, I don't know, like if you're uncomfortable with something you've done in the past or or something that kind of sticks with you like once you get comfortable with it and embrace it it just feels so much better like to just like live with it and be like yeah that's just something stupid I did but here's what I'm gonna do with it yeah you know and like making it what is the origin story of design milk how did you come up with that name stupid inside joke Amy (laughs) (laughs) it started It was just very silly. And then it turned into, it actually turned out to be the best name because it's memorable. It has a goofy logo and it's, it doesn't take itself too seriously, which is exactly what I wanted my, my voice to be for the site. And I don't know, it's just been really awesome. So I'm I'm glad I didn't change it. I think that Megan has, she has an atypical trajectory But in many ways, it's universal in that it's all about like sort of claiming these aspects of yourself and then deciding how you want to share them with the world. And and every sort of aspect of the way she's sharing herself with the world, she's becoming more empowered. It doesn't sound like, you know, some people aren't, they give it up, it goes out there in the world and then they feel abused by it. 
it's not happening like that. Well, I do have a Whore's Army bracelet, so I can say that I'm already signed up or I've already enrolled in the, the Megan Hill Army. So I believe it's enlisted, right? Yes, enlisted. That That's correct. <laughs> I don't really know anything about military stuff. It just dawned on me that Whore's Army is... She went to military boarding school. So the army thing is, is that's a reference to her military past. I love it. Hey, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Megan's work. You can also connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcasts. We love hearing from you guys. And we also have a special favor to ask. As many of you know, Facebook's algorithm is making it more difficult for small publishers and businesses to get seen. So if you love Clever, please share it with a friend on Facebook, comment, or like it. We really need your support. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.